Hurry Slowly is an ad-free, listener-supported podcast, and I rely on your contributions to continue to do this work. If you value the ideas offered by this podcast, you can make a one-time or ongoing donation at hurryslowly.co slash donations. Anything that you can offer is deeply appreciated. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly. Today, I'm in conversation with Amara Spence. I come from this long lineage of people who know how to make things out of nothing every day. If that's not radical imagination, I don't know what is. And this is this is the truth, this is the lived experience of, of my whole community, of working class people, of queer people, of people having to create their own every day, you know, having been disinvested in, having been, uh, unloved having been uncared for or untending to and we call it survival so we're like how do we combine this idea that there are people who are creating from nothing and not being invested in but are creating so much value in the world what would they do if they could have their material needs met what would they do if they had their access needs met what would they build what would they birth in the world if they had the license and the space and the community and all of the things right to dream and create things beyond survival. Amara Spence is an artist, an organizer, a spatial practitioner, and a designer for social justice movements. She is the co-founder of Maya, an arts and social justice organization that's based in the West Midlands, UK, that is committed to investing in the transformative power of Black imagination. She is also the co-creator of the Yard Art House, an experiment in building a self-sustaining, community-owned space that supports local artists and invests in radical imagination. She is also the co-creator of Abuelos, an artist-led hotel and cultural hub that Maya is currently raising money to bring to fruition. Amara believes passionately in the ability of art and artists to change the world, and is on a mission to create spaces that help those artists and communities who have been systematically disinvested in come together to imagine a new future. As we synthesize everything that we've learned during the past two years of pandemonium, it seems to me that visions of vibrant local communities that foster radical imagination are exactly the medicine we need. Amara is a real light. And I thoroughly enjoyed talking with her about how she creates spaces that invest in mutual thriving and make room for the conversations and the care and the vision that our world so desperately needs. Let's dive in. You co-founded Maya, named after the ancient goddess of nurturing and growth in 2013 at the age of 22. And on your website, you describe Maya as an artist-led cultural organization that is invested in change and equitable futures, acknowledging artists and culture can be conduits for imagining and realizing new systems. So that is a really big and beautiful mission to invest in right out of the gates at 22. (laughs) Could you tell me a little bit about where the fire to pursue that mission at such a young age came from? I can try. I I think there was a few things. So at 22, that was definitely not the vocabulary or even the framing that I was consciously thinking about. At the same time, 
I feel like there are a couple of lineages to, to the way that I think and what became the practice. And one of those was absolutely the granddaughter of three incredible Caribbean people and one incredible Irish woman who they inherently understood that in order to be in England and to, and to exist and to thrive in conditions that aren't conducive to thriving, the only way to do that is collective. Um, and I saw that in lots of different ways, like my my grandparents who came from the Caribbean to the UK at sort of the tail end of what we call the Windrush era, so where the mass migration of um, Caribbean migrants moved to the UK. Um, there were all of these things that were going against their right to existence, right? They, they weren't even able to access housing. They weren't able to access um, employment. And the sort of promise of coming to the motherland was shattered very early on. Um, as soon as like the NHS was built up and things like this. So what happened was my grandparents in that generation inherently knew the only way that we're gonna be okay is if we all take care of each other. We all have to share responsibilities. We all have to invest in the collective beyond the self. And that became the everyday practice. Um, so I come from this kind of lineage. At the same time, I'm like the biggest hip hop nerds. I am the biggest like, you know, I, I grew up on like Jay-Z and, you know, these, these artists and musicians who were vocalizing a frustration about the built environment. They were vocalizing a frustration about their everyday conditions um, and actually the social systems around them. Um, that it was resistance in poetry in lots of ways. And then, you know, just to talk about John Singleton, because any opportunity, why not? I didn't realize that I would watch films like Boys in the Hood, I would watch Friday, and they would kind of give these everyday vocabularies to things that we were also seeing in different ways here in England. Um, we were seeing how racial politics was playing out um, in the industry, and here are some artistic forms of expression that are breaking this down for some of us. Like Boys in the Hood was the first time I ever heard about gentrification it was the first time I heard that word and I remember thinking what is that um and there was something about the power of art in that translation piece in the storytelling that that shifted something in me so these lineages that kind of led me to I've always been an artist since I was a kid I've loved making music I've, I've been a, a theatre maker a storyteller because I come from a family of storytellers whether they think that they're artists or not is another conversation but there is something that was there that was, I wanna do this, but what are the conditions that make it possible for me to do this? And in order to answer that question, I have to think beyond myself, how is it possible that anyone can do what they love for a living? And what does it mean to do that? What does it take? And of course, then when you add uh, the sort of multiple levels of oppression and multiple systems that play out to oppress people. I couldn't answer that question without thinking about power and the way that that plays out, the way that it manifests in geography, the way it manifests through race, the way it manifests in sort of ableism and queer, like all of these things, right? Um, so there was sort of a way to say, but as artists, we're always practicing alternative realities. We're always exploring beyond our current paradigm? Is there something about what it is to be an artist in the first place that we can that we can harness, that we can sort of convene and use that as a power to say, how do we want to reimagine the world? So that's kind of somewhere in there was like 2013, boom, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's a wonderful overview. And I think we're going to kind of unpack all of the things that you just touched on throughout this interview. And I'd like to start with going a little deeper into this idea of thinking about the artist and thinking about if you are an artist or not. And I'm curious how moving into this work has led you to reimagine your own idea of yourself as an artist and what an artist is and what an artist does, right? I mean, all over the world, there's this rich history of artist activists, right? Like Wallace Schwenka, Audre Lorde, Vaclav Havel, Ai Weiwei, Nina Simone, right? I could go on and on and on and on. Could you talk about your own relationship to art and activism and your take on what makes someone a quote-unquote artist? I think I'm asking myself that very question every day, you know, that even I think when we started Maya, we very quickly realised we have to completely reimagine what it is to be an artist in that context. I mean, I'm speaking to you as someone in, you know, in England, which has this very, very direct relationship with colonial power and, and how that manifests across how we understand work is a thing that I hold. So there's been there's been something that's like, how do we reimagine what it is to be an artist when it has such an elitist history? It has such this, you know, there's this idea of where did you train? Who are your contemporaries? What qualifications do you have? What residences have you been on? Who gave you grants? Like all of this that is like, there's an, there's an industry around it that's rooted in elitism, that's rooted in like power and extraction. It's also rooted in like spatial politics, um, absolutely aesthetic colonialism. Um, it, it's rooted in all of these things. And we're really interested in this idea of there's, there's something about what it is to imagine and, and, and imagine beyond our current paradigm and who gets to do that and who has the license, the freedom, what does it take to engage in that as a practice? What does it then take to make something from that imagination process? That actually it starts to become... To, to, to me, certainly to the work, but absolutely to me personally, a very spiritual practice. Um, and there is something that it's about who gets denied the ability to tap into the spiritual, to connect with that as a practice. Um, it's something that's been weighing on my mind heavy. And even today, you know, we were having a conversation with some artists that we're sharing space with today. Um, and someone said to me, I know what it takes for you to do this work. I know what you're giving up to do that. And a part of you creating the conditions for other people to be an artist is you're not able to be an artist. And I was like, oh, because somebody, I remember when I first wanted to like have a space, like a physical space to do this work. And another person who runs a gallery said to me, the second that you run a space, you become the administrator, not the artist. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I wonder if there's another I wonder if there are other possibilities, right? I wonder if, if we can move beyond that binary, what happens? So when this person said this to me today, it something struck because I was like, there are stakes in what it takes to transform conditions. And there are negotiations that every day we have to make. And I didn't realize that what I was making at, at the time of going on this journey was maybe I'm not gonna be able to exercise my own artistic practice in the way that I imagine. And then half an hour later, another friend of mine came who's also an artist and he said, I think your practice has evolved. And I think what you're now doing is you're, you're using time and space as the material. That is your, 
that is your source material. You are experimenting with time and space. What a thing. And I was like, oh. So it's like every day, my, how I'm thinking about what it is to be an artist and how I get to show up in this space is constantly evolving as well. And there's something in that that I'm like, I long for that for all of us. I long for us to be able to evolve and, and change and shape shift around these definitions. I long for us to not be so rigid in these binaries. And maybe there's a way that artists can just encapsulate all of that. Or maybe it doesn't, you know? I love that. And it's reminding me, um, a few years ago, I was reflecting on my own identity as an artist and how I like didn't feel like I fit into this mold of sort of a classic vision of an artist. And something that really changed my perspective on what being an artist means was I was reading this book by this woman, Christine Downing, which is called The Goddess. And I was reading specifically about Athena, the goddess of wisdom and handicraft and war. And one of the things that Downing writes is, um, this is a quote, Athena's art is the art made within and for the community. In her realm, the distinction between fine and practical art fades away. It's the art that issues from work, from discipline and training, rather than from untutored, unfettered inspiration. She finds place and gives image to the driving necessities. So Athena is the warrior goddess, and it's almost this kind of communal warrior goddess vibe. And this idea that art isn't this rarefied elite thing, but it's about finding practical solutions by working on things together in community. I thought that was really interesting, this idea that there's a real art in doing that, in knowing what question to ask at this moment, in knowing just the right moment or the right spatial context to provide, you know, in understanding how to access or unlock the potential of a situation. So I'm curious what your take is on that perspective. When you were speaking, what came to mind is something about art as facilitation. There's something to me about, I remember, I think it was Adrian Marie Brown. I'm sure this won't be the last time I speak about Adrian Marie Brown today. But I think Adrian was saying that, that, that she believes that the, how she thinks about facilitation is about finding the right questions in the room as opposed to the answers. And there's something I think, I think there's something about art that does that. I think there's something about art that is trying to find the questions and not about giving the answers. Um, but even that, it's like we've created an industry that kind of, that, that grapples with that because there's something about even all of this, you know, I think about this being a spiritual practice to create an industry from something that is spiritual. You, there's no container for that, you know? There's no container for the spiritual in a capitalist context. And what happens is, the, the orientation of what art is and can do and can be shifts. And now we try and put it into these really rigid contexts and it and it loses it loses the spirit. You can't carry that through. So as you were just talking, I was just thinking about the power of facilitation um, and how facilitation can be such a somatic experience, you know, and that's something that I'm really interested in how art can do that or tend to that. When we're definitely going to come back to Adrian in a moment, probably more than <laughs> yeah. once. Kind of following up on what a little bit of what you were starting to touch on there, I know that you're interested specifically in creating spaces and support for artists who normally don't have access to much of either of those things. And I want to talk more about space in a moment, but I would first 
love to ask you to tell me about your thoughts on art as a force for effecting systemic change. I think that's something that we've been, we didn't realize that that was what we were exploring at the time. Um, when, so what happened in 2015, up until that point, we've kind of been, I say this like hesitantly, but we'd been a little bit of a middleman for institutions. We were like, how do we support artists to do what they love for a living? It was a completely different time that we were in. Also, I was really young and and I guess in some ways naive and, and innocent to how power actually works and how it manifests in the world. Um, so we were acting as a middleman for these institutions and very quickly realised that there are, there are some really systemic things at play here. And actually it can be really easy to be complicit in those if we don't have that context, if we don't have that sort of overview. And even, you know, um, I have a sense that you may be much more astute to this in, 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 the, in the US, but there was something that was um, happening in my city of Birmingham, where I am in, in England, where uh, there was a lot of investment made into the city very quickly um, from all sorts of sources and artists and arts organizations kind of went in as quickly as possible and it's like let's secure this place let's do this uh, this developer wants to work with us here's some free studio space and it's like we can so easily get caught up in this extractive extraction piece this art washing piece this how do we take the value of what other people are creating and use it for our own gain developers are, that's the developer business model but actually in the cultural sector and the art world we're also really complicit in that so we're kind of realizing as as a middleman as we were pre-2015 that we were complicit in this way of we weren't addressing anything at the systems level we weren't thinking critically about what does it actually take to create the conditions for some other possibilities to become feasible um and in that complicity we weren't we weren't changing anything, you know, even the basic realisation of there is no way to have ongoing work in the city of Birmingham as an artist. So then if we're just this middleman, we're, we're replicating that same pattern. But there was something about art that was, how can art or art making as expansive as we want to think about art making transform conditions? How do we think about art as a mutual aid practice? Or how can we think about um, the, the building the activity itself as the artwork that we were like, there's something here that we want to explore. And there's, there's that thing as well of, we don't have answers, right? We have loads of questions. We we're rehearsing the future that we're dreaming about and envisioning with practice in it. And I think even that the idea that this is a creative practice that we're all collectively part of is something that it's like, we're, we're constantly battling all sorts of, other forces and other directions and other systemic things happening we're trying to embody something else but we've never lived in this context so of course like we're getting stuff wrong all the time and learning and iterating and growing and trying something out and then getting something else wrong and literally this whole thing is like a practice of, of another world and I think there's something about us as artists saying that this is also the artwork yeah, well, and it's so brave to ask those questions and then step into rehearsing the <laughs> answers. I want to come back to something that you mentioned a few moments ago, which was thinking about who who gets to imagine. So in a recent talk that you gave, you 
shared a quotation from Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, who's, who's also been a guest on this podcast, in which she writes, quote, we are always living inside someone's imagination. Imagination gives us borders, gives us superiority, gives us race as an indicator of ability. I often feel I am trapped inside someone else's capability. I often feel I am trapped inside of someone else's imagination, and I must engage my own imagination in order to break free, end quote. So much of your work is about creating spaces that center the imaginations and the artistic practices of those who have been systematically disinvested in, specifically Black, Brown, queer, and disabled folks. I would love to hear you talk about whose imagination gets centered in our cultural spaces and what that means. I think across the board, there's something that goes back to that, you know, when we were trying to grapple with this idea of who gets to be an artist, there was some weird thing happening where it was like, we want to go and do all of this engagement work in these areas where there's low cultural activity. But actually it's like the these are the areas that we live in and there's loads of cultural activity. It's not invested in, you know, there's no resources. What you're seeing is like, is, is the everyday imagination practice of people who aren't invested in, um, and culture exists here in abundance. At the same time, there's a piece that's like this, this radical imagination. We talk a lot about radical imagination and, and using the word radical as in to get to the root of, you know, I think sometimes people talk about radical as though it's just like massive, like what's the biggest, craziest, wackiest, boldest thing we can do? And actually it's like, what's at the essence of what it is to be? Like, how do we get to the root of what this means? Um, so when we talk about radical imagination, it's so interesting that I see this all around me all the time, like where I live, where I work, where I've grown up, we call it survival. <laughs> You know, like when I think about my granddad would take like flour, water, salt, a little bit of cornmeal, mix it the hell up, put it in a pot and it would be a dumpling. And it's the most incredible form of food. Like I grew up on dough, you know, like I grew up on dumpling and it's like this mind blowing thing. And I watch him like he knows how to make something out of nothing. And I come from this long lineage of people who know how to make things out of nothing every day. If that's not radical imagination, I don't know what is. And this is this is the truth. This is the lived experience of, of my whole community, of working class people, of queer people, of people having to create their own every day, you know, having been disinvested in, having been uh, unloved, having been uncared for or untending to, and we call it survival. So we're like, how do we combine this idea that there are people who are creating from nothing and not being invested in, but are creating so much value in the world? And I mean value not in this capitalist sense, but of what it is to be human. They're, they're creating so much in the world and sharing so much in the world. What would they do if they could have their material needs met? What would they do if they had their access needs met? What would they build? What would they birth in the world if they had the license and the space and the community and all of the things, right? To dream and create things beyond survival, what does that look like? So I think a lot of our work is like, 
how do how do we create the spaces to practice that process or to practice what that looks like and how do we call it art regardless you know how do we call it art and maybe in a year's time we'll say I don't think it's art I think it's something else and we'll go with that you know because we're following spirits it's like yeah like maybe we'll call it something else maybe we'll create a new language maybe we'll go back to language that we've already had but we've been stripped away from maybe the english language isn't even expansive enough i'm like i'm getting excited now look what you've done oh my goodness (laughs) (laughs) so kind of tuning into this idea of practice talking about spiritual growth As I think about my own creative practice and I think about spiritual growth, I always end up circling back again and again to the idea of space and the idea of having external space or a sort of sanctuary to enact your creative practice, but also enough internal spaciousness to have room for creativity. And more and more, I think of myself not as, you know, an author or a writer or creator, but as a channel and to come back to Adrienne Marie Brown, who I know is a touchstone for both of us and for so many people. I was watching an interview with her and the musician Toshi Regan, where she said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm a fertile channel of creativity and I am constantly clearing and tending to the channel. That's the spiritual practice so that I can create what's meant to be created through me. And Part of creating that internal space, right, for the creativity to flow through is simply having access to rest, right, a respite from overwhelm or being in survival mode. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on rest and space as it informs your movement work. I mean, I couldn't even respond to this question without saying how much Trisha Hersey and the NAP ministry um, significantly transformed the way that I thought about rest as like radical reclamation. Um, But at the time that I I, I came across Trisha Hersey's work, I had intellectualized that space and rest was important. I didn't know how to make that real for myself or anyone else. At the same time, I was, I, I think I do that classic thing of lots of us do of, right, you, you make sure that everybody else like has all that they need to, to, to rest and be well. And we try and take care of everyone else. And often like at the negation of ourselves, or it's like, we don't know how to practice what we preach, you know, the, the saying. So in intellectualizing what the NAP ministry was about, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is important. I'm going to retweet all your posts. and I'm going to share your graphics. <laughs> I'm not resting. I'm like, yeah, but capitalism, can I even do it? Like if I, you know, and and I reached this, what a way that COVID just stopped everything. You know, I feel like it, it, it's, it stopped the world in some ways. And it's like, and look at nature doing her thing, you know, look at nature helping us try and return to source or, or, or something. Um, at the same time as that happened, like my own health, crashed you know I I think I had there were so many compounding things that were happening at the same time in 2020 um and and so much grief and and I was talking earlier this week about how grief ravages the body and of course what it is to be an oppressed people where grief is a part of our everyday and our bodies are constantly ravaged by these systems I was like I'm tired all of the time 
And when COVID happened, it's like we lost so many people close to us, around us. I had a baby. Shortly after I had a heart attack, like it was just like, you know, I was a 29 year old somebody having all of these things happen. Um, my son was born um, with a chronic condition and to be in hospital for a long period of time with him in the time of COVID, which was like being in prison, it was like, there is nothing conducive to wellness in this environment that we're in. So I kind of, you know, I was trying to grow an organization at the first time. That was the first time that we'd had enough resource to put the team on payroll. Game changer, whoa. What what spaciousness that creates, but at the same time, expectations, other levels of accountability and reporting and all of these things, like we have to do our due diligence. But before that, we were like a team of hustlers. We were like, do what we can and grab what we can and give back to the people. Then we're like, we're trying to Robin Hood this whole thing. Whereas this level of resource, it transformed things. You know, we had to then be accountable to lots of other stakeholders. Um, so all of that was happening. And I got to a point last year, last year, I don't, even, I don't know, whenever it was, I think it was last year. What is time right now? I got to this point where I was like, I'm, I'm going to leave the organization tomorrow. I'm going to leave Maya. I'm done. You know, I'm either done or I'm going to break. It's one of those two. That's it. Um, because of all of these compounded things. And I'm so blessed that um, I have such a wonderful team of people, you know, that, that we work with and it's, they took care of things so I could have a sabbatical. But there's something about that beyond the Nat Ministries posts, posts, I had never seen a black woman rested. I didn't know what that looks like. I didn't know how to do that. Like I genuinely, I've never seen it. I've probably seen images of aliens before I've seen black women rested. Like it's so, it's so otherworldly to me that I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to shut off. I didn't know how to, how to step away. I also didn't know how to do that and be a mom. You know, I've got two children. Like <laughs> what is rest with two children? All of these things, but I knew I needed to do something. So I ran away to like the countryside uh, we stayed in this cottage that was like banked on a river and all these things and just returning to nature in that in that context and being with my family and my loved ones was so restorative but more than anything I had time to catch my breath back and I had clarity for the first time in probably five years of what is it we're actually orienting to how do we want to rearrange the business how can I give myself the freedom to think about as an exit strategy, as corporate as that sounds, like how can I, before COVID, I'd always thought of myself as sinking with the ship, you know, no matter what happens, we're going to ride our way through it till the very end. And COVID was like, what, what do I want for myself? You know, what do I, how do I want to show up in the world? How do I want my children to perceive me? How do, you know, who do I want to be? overworked, exhausted and broken is not that. So what do I need to do? And the clarity and, and the time and processing time. And I, you know, I would write little poems for myself. And, you know, I just kind of, I felt like it was a long exhale. I had clarity about the organization, the direction that I was so comfortable with in terms of this is really what we're trying to do. Forget anyone else's expectations, forget like the game that we have to play, forget the language. Like this is our essence, you know, it's about we want to resource the movement in any way that's possible. And we see mutual aid as the way as the way to do that. 
collective practices as the way to do that. We want to amplify what art can do for system change and liberation. How can we make that happen? What does that look like? Let's play, you know, and we want to build spaces as sites of imagination. How do we do that? How do we get resources? How do we grow capacity for more people to create sites of imagination and whatever that looks like in their context? That's the work. And I'm like, and now that I have clarity, it's so much easier for the rest of the team to have clarity. It's so much easier for everyone else to, to know how they want to show up in this work. So I can start to imagine other ways that I might spend my time, you know, after this. I'm, I may leave in a few years. I may leave next year. I may leave in 10. I don't know. But I feel like I've given myself freedom to imagine other possibilities for myself. And in doing so, it's created this whole other spaciousness for the people that I work closest with they're now imagining and freeing themselves up to think I didn't know that what I believe and what I see in the world I can make something real of and I know how to do it now and they've all got these incredible ideas and they're all like yeah. these other possibilities they become irresistible they become contagious they become like everyone is a force right now game changer all because I took a nap <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. So let's talk about these spaces and this vision. You've been really hard at work over the past few years trying to create these literal physical Black-led spaces to help support and connect and resource artists. You've been raising money for Abuelos, a 56-room art hotel that would reinvest its income back into the community and into grassroots projects and into independent artists. And then kind of on the way to creating Abuelos, you decided that you needed to be taking action right now while you were raising money for that project. And you opened Yard in a four-bedroom house in Birmingham, which is a smaller scale experiment in nurturing and resourcing the imaginations of local artists. Could you talk in a little more detail about your vision for these spaces and maybe what you've, what you've learned so far? Yes, sure. So the hotel idea came from, so in the city of Birmingham, there are so many significantly invested in arts organizations, institutions, festivals um, that are happening all the time, or at least they were before COVID. It's coming back. But, you know, before COVID, they, you know, there was so much cultural activity happening. And the city and like all the PR machine behind the city would make this big deal about how art amplify space and how the relationship between art and place making and all these things and it felt like a really extractive piece like and a really extractive thing that was playing out because the same artists that were being propped up as like look what this is doing for our city weren't being invested in weren't having their basic care needs met um but also were being accommodated in private properties around the city so we would have massive festivals and artists from all over the world would be invited in and they'd be, they'd go and stay in like Airbnb. They'd go and stay in um, uh, private apartments, hotel chains, etc. So we did some maths and we were like, there is like millions of pounds uh, just from the cultural sector's hospitality spend alone that goes to private landlords. How wasteful, how extractive, how short term. We said, is there a more regenerative way that we can that we can share that resource, that that resource goes back to local people, back to artists, back to the people who make that value 
How do we share the value of what's created? So the hotel idea came from that, but we said it's not enough to create in the spirit of the precedents that exist in the cultural sector already. We don't want to create another standard theatre space. We don't want to create a white cube gallery. What spirit does this place need to embody? So we started speaking about our grandparents' homes. We started speaking about the places that brought us joy. We started speaking about the conviviality that exists on a Saturday when all our relatives are there and the children are all excited and stories are being told and there's food and there's this vibrancy. We're like, how to create a financially sustainable sound place that actually is more than sustainable, it's regenerative. How do we create that? but in the spirit of our grandparents' homes. So that's why we called it Abuelos. But when we're an organization that we've never had significant money in our turnover, like ever, our balance sheets are like awful. So we're like, how do we, how do we raise the money or how do we get our ones and twos in order so that we can play at that scale so that we can generate the millions of pounds that it's gonna take and we have to get proximate now. Our community needs things now. Our community needs physical space to organize, to make, to drop their shoulders, to relax, to be in community. We need that now. So we talked to, I mean, I put this blog post out really publicly about this sort of hotel vision. And a lot of property developers got in touch and they said, this is great. Here's a five-year lease. Here's a one-year lease. Here's a six-year lease or something stupid. And it's like, we could do that. We can play that meanwhile use game, but our community deserves permanence. So maybe there are other artists, other organizations that want to do that meanwhile use thing. And that's an important part of this, but actually our community deserves permanence. So who's prepared to enter that terrain with us? There was one developer in the city who was investing significantly in developing the city that didn't shy away when we started to have that conversation. And it's not perfect, you know, it's not, I'm never like pro developer, like, and that's that's just the reality of what it is. Um, there's a business model that's inherently extractive, but there is something that's like, how do we share the value of what we create? How does this not stay within the developer's um, remit? They were a developer who were kind of, they were riding with us when we were interrogating some of that stuff. So we said, how do we get proximate with what you're doing? How can we build a vision for something that is practical, that is real for the community right now? And it just so happened that they had to be investing um, on the, the street that I grew up in. They were building like 200, sorry, 200, 1500 homes. Um, and within that, within that new development, they wanted these cultural spaces. And we said, well, if we work towards getting one of those, those spaces, can we take one of the houses now? So we turned the house into, it was a four bedroom townhouse. Um, and we said, how much can we possibly do with it? But we got the keys uh, in June of 2020. And it was like, we were like, maybe this COVID thing will be over in a month. And the UK were almost as dreadful as the US government have been in dealing with COVID. So we're still in a pandemic, you know, and we're still, there's that thing of when we're organizing, one of our core values is it's about access. We, we talk about access in the context of disability justice, like nobody is disposable, which means that we have to be thinking and organizing in ways that are rooted in disability justice. So we can't now just open this 
this house is a free-for-all and everyone do what they want, but we have to get strategic and even how we do that. So it felt like the whole of 2021 was an experiment of how do we make a space that's as accessible as possible, that can share its resources as freely and as openly as possible, whether that's monetary, whether that's um, IT and technology resources, whether that's connections and, and, and touch points and all of these things. How do we do that through this space while lots of people's doors are shut? Um, and then how do we grow that over time so that as the COVID guidelines change or the stipulations change how can the space grow um and it's only really this this let's say the end of last year the start of this year is where we really got to see what that's like and I must say I had a dream about Abuelos uh in 2015 when I was pregnant with my first son um and every day that I come to yard and there are people here there are artists making, there are kids here making, there are all of these intergenerational conversations that are happening. Um, there's always food here. People are engaging in these really critical conversations and laughing and taking care of each other. What I dreamed about, I see every day to the point, it's like a painting, it's so bizarre. I'm like, this is literally a manifestation of what we've been talking about, even at a small scale. So let's, let's grow it. And it might be, you know, maybe we don't get abuelos in the location that we're trying to get it in but also that we've collectively imagined these possibilities with our community now everyone is thinking about physical infrastructure and the ambition and the scale at which we can do that in a way that we hadn't done before so it's now everyone's got this license to dream but not just dream it's like advocating as well like let's move beyond the dreaming and the envisioning which is always an important muscle but now we're showing up for each other in a really different way. So it's like, yeah, we've got exhibitions here, film screenings, theatre productions, poets, films, like everything. Those things happen in a really small scale because it's literally a four bedroom house. But what's more important to me is that people are realising that there are so many other possibilities from beyond this world that we're currently living in. And we have all we need to do that. And you can you can you can make something out of nothing. You can do what our ancestors have always done, but maybe we can do that with physical space now. Maybe we can do that knowing that no matter the narratives that we've been fed, that our society isn't collective, that it's still rooted in the eye. Maybe we're actually demonstrating that that's not true, or that it's not a universal truth. And to me, that feels like the most important bit of this. It's it's those other possibilities. Well, so let's go a little into that, into imagining new possibilities. Um, one of the things that I've heard you say and that I really agree with is that if we're going to imagine a future together, we have to be willing to get uncomfortable and to have the conversations that maybe we're a little bit afraid of having and that we need spaces where we can do those experiments and where we can get it wrong. And I'm curious how that aspect of the work is um, unfolding for you with what you're doing and with the space that you're creating at Yard. Oh, I think this is, um, thank you for this question. This is something that I've been really, I'm learning so much from even something very interesting happened when we got a grant, you know, in the end of 2019, we got that first grant that, you know, gave us enough income that four people could have salaries, which was incredible. <laughs> the external perception of what it is to suddenly have money, it's like now, 
things have changed. You know, the way that some people in our community expect us to show up is different. And what that looks like, the reality doesn't match the expectation. Sometimes things sever. Sometimes, sometimes things happen where it's like, before this gets to a conflict, we need to have space to speak. You know, bef- yes, like, yes, art and yes, all these other things. But I think there's something about us saying art as like a creation of other paradigms. We don't want to like romanticize what that means because we can only do that stuff when we know how to, at an interpersonal scale, deal with tension, when we know how to deal with conflicts and when we know how to deal with harm. But we don't know how to do that because we've never had the space to do that. So we have to practice what that looks like. I've seen this first with the team themselves, like the team's grown over the last few years, the team's changed. And there are people who have walked with me personally from the very beginning of, I think I want to set up an organization, you know, like they were kind of there from the origins. They also understand my personal philosophy. It's one thing to have those people. And then it's other people. It's another thing to have people who are like, I really want to do this as a job, you know, like people show up in different ways, but also the proximity to the philosophy and the narrative is different. So it's so easy to have fractures within the team. And my first experience of that really was, um, was, you know, in COVID where there was this thing of, you know, in order for us to have an organization that's trying to transform conditions, we ourselves have to also be transformed, right? Like, we are also having to learn how to reimagine even this relationship. And not everybody wants to do that. So also maybe this work isn't for everyone, you know? And that was, I think that was a difficult, I made an assumption that everyone joined the organization because they really believed in what I believed in. And actually some people just wanted to be proximate to something that was interesting or different. And I was naive about that, you know, I just thought like, yeah, we all believe in this stuff, right? Yeah, it's like, no, not everybody does. And also that, you know, sometimes it's like, I don't know if if this is the same in your context, but sometimes people are like, yeah, like change and we're all for like social change and all these things. And it's like, what, what, what change are you for again? So like, what are you striving towards? You know, we make assumptions that we're all on the same page. We all want the same things. Like everyone is anti-racist and everyone is like, Uh, you know, like everybody's rooted in like access and and care. Everyone's talking about care, but actually we're not, or even how that manifests is really different for people. So when we make assumptions that we're all on the same page, have we even worked out the basics yet? Have we even worked out how we want to be in relationship with the people who are most proximate before we do this big world building alternative future visioning piece? Like, can we work out the basics? And I actually think that's so much of the work. I see this at Yard because yes, you know, like I said, we have all of these artistic programs and all of these things, but I am doing a little bit of a rubbing hood thing of sometimes this is what invites people in. Like sometimes people want to come because it's a film screening, but before you know it, it's like being at my granddad's house. Sometimes you think you're just going over there because it's Saturday and you know, he's going to be watching a Western. But actually what happens is maybe now you're having a conversation with your uncle about abolition. Maybe you don't call it abolition, but maybe you're imagining a world without prisons with your uncle. I see this at Yard now. We're like, 
we're going to make some art together or like, yeah, bring your kids. Like we're going to have like lunch with everyone. It's going to be an incredible space. But actually now we're having these really critical conversations about what does it take to do this? Like we're all now having these conversations about reimagining and post COVID and all of this stuff that what does it take question is becoming even more urgent because now a lot of people don't want to rest on their laurels. Now a lot more people have realized we can't be ignorant. A lot more people have realized I'm not comfortable with complacency. I want to enjoy my life. What do I need to do to do that? Oh, I have to be in relationship with other people. What does that look like? I feel like we're in this moment of reckoning. We need safe spaces for that. And safe is literally like, safe is diff like to make safe is difficult. To make space is hard. To make space, we're gonna hurt each other. How do we hold on to something far bigger than ourselves so it doesn't break the relationship unless it needs to break, you know? And that's where, again, that, that faith piece comes back to me because I'm like, where a relationship doesn't need to break and where it actually might just need space or a moment or a breath. We need the safety for it. We need something bigger than ourselves to commit ourselves to so that we can go on that journey. So moving a little bit deeper into some of that discomfort that you were just talking about, I like to use the phrase generative discomfort, which I think is the space where real change happens. And I was recently listening to a conversation with the writer, educator, and podcaster, Tressie McMillan Cottom. And she was talking about how broadening access and increasing equity doesn't mean that everyone gets to be more comfortable together. It doesn't mean that everyone now gets to have the same level of comfort that, you know, I privileged person have had up until now. What it means is that we now all get to be uncomfortable. And so in that view, kind of already equity for those who are a part of the dominant culture means opening to more discomfort, which as you said, not everyone is maybe on board for. And even if we're on board with that and we're striving for equity, that means that we're still working within the existing systems that we have. But if we move beyond equity to liberation, then we're talking about breaking free from the systems themselves. Would you be willing to share your perspective on equity and liberation and how that impacts the spaces that you are working to create? I've been really inspired by, um, we've been having like some conversations with Brian Seeley Jr. Uh, from Colocate in New Orleans. Um, and he he shared with us, I think it was called the, it wasn't the diversity to liberation matrix, but it was it was something along that, um, along that framing of if we're striving for, I mean, I should caveat this by saying the UK, we're only just, we're only just started to even have conversations about equity, like diversity and inclusion and equality are still like, that's, a, that, that's where we are, like, and even still, we're so rooted in like representation politics, and it's all very surface level. Um, I must add as well, 
our website has not been updated for about five years. So like, not in any good way. So even, you know, allowing our terminology to evolve as our learning evolves is a key thing because we also now don't talk about equity. And something that really showed up for us um, after the murder of George Floyd, um, because there were uprisings all across the world, when when that happened in um, in Bristol, which is about an hour away from where we are now, um, they were tearing down the Colson statue, who who um, was a figure who made a lot of money off long story cut short uh, enslaved people and um, and sort of like colonial empire stuff. Um, when his statue was torn down, suddenly all the black-led social justice organisations across the country got invitations. Can you do our anti-racist training? Can you come and help us think more anti-racist? Like all of this stuff, right? And we were like, one, when have we ever said that that we do anti-racist work? Like we don't do anti-racist work. Like we do lots of things, but that we can't just whip up a you know a whole a whole program for for us to now go on. But also, I think even anti-racist leads to a level of comfort, right? It's much easier to say anti-racist than it is to say pro-black. You know, I don't want to know so much what you're against. I want to know what you're for. Like, everyone, I want to know what you're for. What do you orient towards? What do you show up for? What do you commit yourself to? Because the what you're fighting against, it's too easy to hide behind things. It's too easy to, like, chicken out. It's too easy to, like, cover it and wrap it up with some stuff. And it leads to stagnation. It leads to nobody really doing anything. So it's literally, like, we say our work is about black liberation because it's really clear. And it's either you believe in black liberation, you believe in what many scholars of um, intersectionality and, and other fields talk about, where if you center um, queer, trans, disabled, working class, black perspectives, everybody gets free, like everybody is free. This idea that, you know, that colonialism has steeped so deeply into us that this individual, I must be free, therefore you can't. And it's the complete opposite of, of what our communities know as true, of what indigenous communities know as true. The only way for liberation is collective liberation. The only way we prosper is collective. The only way to do that. So there is something that's like, if we all show up for black liberation, that centers disabled, queer, trans, and working class people everybody gets free and that's that's really where it's like this is what we have to commit ourselves to this is what has to underline all of our practice I want to see who shows up for what queer trans liberation looks like I want to see that so you've been doing this movement work for over eight years now while as you mentioned raising two kids having a baby during the pandemic while living through this now two almost two plus year global pandemic and that's a lot to hold. And as I have been tapping into the collective lately, particularly this past January, I have just been sensing so much deep sort of bone exhaustion. I'm curious what feelings or challenges or reflections have been coming up for you lately as we continue to move through this difficult period. I think I'm changing my mind all the time or I will feel one way today and different yesterday. 
I remember last week having a conversation with some friends of mine um, and we were saying that in many ways, we were like, yo, a lot of people around us are, um, are feeling particularly broken in a way that they're not familiar with. And maybe last year there was a point where we were like, huh, it's kind of interesting seeing now everyone can see what we've talked about for years. Like everyone can see how oppression plays out. A lot of my friends were like, I feel all right, you know, I feel good because because now I don't feel like society is gaslighting me. Now I don't feel like I've been saying this stuff and everyone's making out like I'm crazy. Now we can all see these things that I've been saying for years, that my mom's been saying for years, my grandparents further back have been saying, I feel a level of comfort. And when my friends said that to me, like, you know, that was then. Now I'm also like, but now we've endured even beyond that feeling where this we're entering even a different space that I can't quite, I can't quite comprehend. I definitely think that 2020 kind of broke me. And I don't think I realized how much until last year, until 2021. Which is why the sabbatical was like, yo, it's now or never. One of my friends said, oh, you shouldn't, um, maybe you shouldn't call it sabbatical because it actually sounds like you're gonna rest. Maybe it's just the maternity leave that you didn't get to have because you were in like crisis mode with your son. And I was like, maybe. Then everyone's like, oh, how can you create like that type of spaciousness that a sabbatical provides regularly as opposed to like crisis mode? And I'm like, I don't even know if that's feasible. But one thing that really moved me so deeply is a lot of people were really supportive vocally that I was taking this break because they started to see how they could create some space for themselves in their own life. Um, I saw a lot of people saying, I'm, I'm following what you're doing. I'm, I'm taking a break. I don't care. I'm done. Which is quite, again, having not seen any black women rested before to now there's a whole squad of us and like somebody's in Wales, somebody's like gone to Spain, somebody's moved to Portugal, you know, like all of these things now. That was quite something. But also I think even that learning and creating that spaciousness, that mental spaciousness, this January has been the slowest, slowest January I've ever had. And it has been absolutely incredible. Like, absolutely incredible. We've had time even, you know, as a team, we've had time to like learn together, eat together, hang out with each other's kids, like, research we're making art together it was like a collective breath you know and we're like okay well let's commit that then that will be a thing every year like we're gonna have a, a slow January and create these like maybe not a whole month throughout the year but maybe we could have a week of it here and maybe a week of it there and maybe you know we tried things before where it's we'd had like the whole of December off and actually a lot of the team didn't like that because it was like I need to be engaged in something Maybe I don't want to sit down and do nothing. There's too many things that I want to respond to. All of all of the team, I've got lived experience of multiple types of oppression. Nobody wants to sit still. You know, nobody wants to feel like I'm not doing anything. So we're like, well, how do we create this slow time for our team? You know, and then how does that then become this irresistible thing that then our community start to create this slow time for themselves? Maybe we can just all have slow time together. Um, so that's something that I've been sitting with at the moment is, post-sabbatical, 
How can I tune in with the rhythm of myself a bit more? In an authentic way as well, that isn't trying to like force something that just isn't realistic. But I think it's like following like the seasons within me. How can I do that in a way that isn't negligent or in denial about the reality? How can I be honest with myself? This slow January has been incredible. And, you know, and because of that, it's led to this February. People were like, yo, when's yard open and I can't wait to come? Like people were like ready for us to come and we were ready to show up. We were ready to be present with our community in a way that 2020, 2021, we were on the treadmill. We were like, graph, 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 share, share, share. We couldn't even see the wood for the trees. And yeah, I just think it's why your invitation to, to have this conversation was such beautiful timing because it's, I'm craving these conversations. I'm craving seeing where this practice exists around me because when I know that it's real for other people, we can start to imagine what that looks like for ourselves. So thank you again. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you. So I have one last question, which I've been asking all of my guests on Hurry Slowly this season. It's about, you know, as we reflect on everything that's been revealed to us during this global pandemic, and we try to synthesize it into some kind of compost for reinvention, what is one question that you would ask listeners to reflect on as they think about how to begin again, maybe with a new perspective or a fresh look? I think it's probably, it's that, it's that what we were talking about earlier in terms of, there's been a lot of anti-work. There's been a lot of like, what are we resisting? What are we fighting? You know, what are we going against? I really want us to sit with what are we for? What are we showing up for? What are we committing ourselves to? How honest can we be with ourselves about that? And it might be like, maybe if we're being really honest with ourselves, maybe it won't be this most incredible thing, but maybe that honesty is more important than anything else because that we, we understand where we are in the world. Maybe that's the thing that will actually change everything, you know? So that what do we want to show up for? Let's sit with that. What a powerful question to end on. Rather than adding my own remarks, I am going to, as Amara recommended, just let you sit with that. This podcast is produced by Matt Susich with additional help from Devin Craig Johnson, who also composed our lovely theme song. If you'd like to hear about what's going on with me or what's going on with Hurry Slowly, you can sign up for my newsletter at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can visit hurryslowly.co slash donations and make a contribution, or you can leave us a review on iTunes. As always, thanks for listening and remember to hurry slowly.